Every year, between March 9th and 11th, Jewish people everywhere celebrate the Festival of Purim, also known as the Festival of Lots. And the festival celebrates the deliverance of the Jewish people from this wicked plot by a guy named Haman uh, to wipe out all of the Jews in the fifth century BC. He's like this Hitler-esque character 2,400 years before Hitler comes on the scene. Now the, the Hebrew Bible is called the Tanakh, which is an acronym, uh, Tanakh, Torah meaning law, Nevi'im meaning the prophets, and Ketuvim meaning the, meaning the writings, which is where we find the scroll of Esther. And the Hebrew word for scroll is Megillah, but when someone references the Megillah, more often than not, they're talking about the scroll of Esther, because on the holiday of Purim, the rabbi will publicly read the whole Megillah, the entire scroll of Esther from start to finish. And every time that Haman is mentioned, people will boo and hiss and make noise to demonstrate their disgust. Now, Purim is not one of the biblically prescribed holidays in the Torah, but I'm going to tell you the story of the book of Esther, and I think you'll see why it has become one of the most important holidays on the Jewish calendar. Now, just a heads up, this sermon is going to be a little bit more of a history lesson than usual, but stick with me because understanding the context of this book will help us encounter God on the pages of Esther, even though God is never actually mentioned in the book. So to that end, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your providence. Lord, you know every single person who is worshiping today. You know what fears they have, what anxieties. You know what keeps them up at night, Lord. And none of it is a surprise to you. Lord, none of this is a surprise to you. So Lord, help us in the moments when we most need your comfort to remember that you hold all things together and that you have a plan, and that your plan has been in motion since before the foundations of the earth were laid. Lord, let us hold on to that hope, and let us lay at your feet anything that would prevent us from hearing your words speak to us today. Help us to find you here in the book of Esther. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen. So our story begins about a hundred years after the Jewish exile in Babylon. Now a brief uh, history refresher, God's people rebelled again and so he disciplines them with this exile in Babylon and not just as punishment, not only as punishment, but also as a means of bringing them back to him, as a means of bringing his children back. Remember, God disciplines those that he loves as sons. Parenthetically, we, we, have, we really have a tendency especially in the West, to believe that all, all pain is punishment from God, but it's not. And that idea can, can really ruin good theology. My, my daughter, Ember, she started Launch Ed this fall, just like everyone else, online school, but she hated it. I mean, I'm talking daily meltdowns and sobbing sessions, and not just me, Ember cried a lot too. I mean, it was, it was painful for the whole family. And, and I don't blame her, she's six, and I think it's really hard for a six-year-old to look at a computer screen for six hours a day, five days a week. So we made the decision that we're gonna switch to, to full-on homeschooling because I can do the lessons whenever I want. I can plan them around my work schedule. Also, it takes us like two hours instead of six, and it has been so life-giving for Ember and for me, for our whole family. She was delighted. The first day we finished and she was like, that's it? I mean, she was just absolutely delighted. But then literally our second day of homeschool, 
I had to be on a, a Zoom call for work at 9 a.m. and she was playing a computer game uh, on her computer and our internet was just overloaded. And so I asked her, hey babe, can you, can you turn your computer off until I'm done with my call? And she just collapsed to the floor like there were no bones in her body, just sobbing, it's not fair. <laughs> and and I, I sent her to her room uh, because I needed to do my call, but also just, I, I needed to cool off you know, we, we had completely rearranged our lives to make this possible. I was so frustrated. We have done everything I could think of to make the school experience more tolerable for her. I mean, I, I became a homeschool mom for her. And if you know me at all, you know that's like my nightmare. You know, it's, it's, it goes porcelain dolls, uh, downhill fast, and homeschool mom. And, and, and that's not a dig on homeschool, okay? Uh, I have a deep respect for homeschool parents. It's a dig on me because I, I'm a worse version of myself when I'm at home all day with my kid. I wish I was a better human, but there it is. So, so I'm, I'm sitting there so frustrated and I say to my husband, oh my gosh, it's, it's like no amount of things getting better will ever make her happy. And then I thought, oh dang, I, I think that's true of me too. I, I think maybe it's true of most people. You know, we, we have this tendency to think that God is being mean or he's being unfair uh, because we don't have a tolerance for discomfort. You know, um, all pain, all discomfort, the media and culture will tell us is intolerable. You shouldn't have to feel that. You shouldn't have to wait for that. So, so take this pill or, or watch this movie or read these books or, or drink this cocktail. But what's the reality? Not all pain is punishment. Some might be, but not all. I'm, I'm, I'm not punishing Ember by asking her to get off her computer for a whole hour. You know, not all pain is punishment, but I digress. This is actually not the point of today's sermon. Um, I, I just needed to be reminded of that, especially in 2020, because it feels like this whole year has been filled with pain and, and it's easy to think that maybe God is mad at me. But if that's you too, just, I need you to hear this. Just because God allows us to learn something from our pain, that doesn't mean that he's teaching you a lesson, if that makes sense. So back to our history lesson. Uh, God, God disciplines his people, right? 586 BC, um, Jerusalem falls to Babylon and the people are carried away as plunder. And then about 50 years later, Babylon is conquered by Persia. King Cyrus then releases the captives. He says, you Jewish people, you can go back, you can rebuild. I'm even gonna give you some supplies to go with you. And so a whole bunch of people go, 40 some thousand people go, but not all of them, not all of them. Why? Because for the same reason that, you know, if someone came to me and said, hey, the, the president said that it's okay for you to go back to Ireland now, uh, where your ancestors are from. To which I would reply, well, thanks very much for the offer but I'm not Irish anymore, don't you know? I'm American, right? I, I live here and, and it's, I know it's not the same. I wasn't taken here by force, but a lot of people stayed in Persia because uh, you know they had families. Even though they'd been taken there by force, now they had families and they had businesses and they had grandkids. Uh, and, and it would have been incredibly difficult for them to return to the rubble that was their ancestral home. So the book of Esther is just one account of what happened to the people that stayed behind. Now I'm gonna give you a plot overview of the book of Esther and it is so interesting, so dramatic and I know it's a lot but I'm hoping that you'll just get so sucked in by the narrative like I was that it'll be easy to pay attention. And then I'm gonna wrap up today by giving you the one point of what will be a one point sermon. So as with any good storytelling, let's begin with the setting. This is Esther 1 beginning in verse one. 
This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. But the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king had instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. This, remarkably, is God's word. So our story begins with Xerxes, king of Persia, who, I don't know if you caught it, has just thrown a three-month party to show off. And historically, we know this was uh, to gain support for his invasion of Greece, which ultimately failed. And, and I feel like he kind of knew it was gonna, uh, if he felt the need to throw like a six-month kegger to get people on board. And so he caps this six-month party off with another seven-day party, where everyone, princes and peasants alike, are served as much alcohol as they want. So, last day of the feast, everyone is loaded, or as the Bible puts it, the king was in high spirits from wine. <laughs> and so Xerxes demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear before all his drunken buddies at the party, wearing her royal crown, and as many historians believe, wearing only her royal crown. Vashti refuses, and so the king deposes her in a drunken rage, and then him and his buddies get together while, by the way, they are still drunk, and they make a law, which is a terrible thing to do when you're drunk, and, and they make this new law that says, from now on, all Persian men are to be the masters of their wives, which is ironic if you think about it, because master of his wife is the one thing that the king of Persia certainly was not. So they need a new queen. Xerxes holds what is essentially a beauty pageant, an involuntary beauty pageant, where all of the most beautiful young virgins of Persia are brought to him, and, and, and then he sleeps with one of them every night until he's happy with one, and she becomes queen. And so this is where we meet our title character, Esther. Esther is an orphan. She's been raised by her cousin Mordecai, and she is beautiful. And so, of course, she's taken away to the king's harem, and Mordecai tells her, don't tell anyone you're Jewish, because he thinks that maybe that will work against her. And Esther wins everybody over just immediately. She just, she charms the men, she charms the women, which I think is arguably harder. The eunuch in charge likes her so much that he helps her to get picked by the king, and she does. And so Esther becomes the queen. And right after this, her cousin Mordecai just happens to overhear these two people talking about a plot to assassinate the king. And so he tells Esther, and Esther tells the king, and then Mordecai is credited with saving the king's life, but the king doesn't reward him. He forgets to reward him. That'll be important later. And then in chapter three, we meet Haman. And if you were in the synagogue at Purim, you would be yelling and booing and banging pots and pans right now. Haman is introduced to us as an Agagite. And this is a little gem of history that's hidden in Esther that I want to take just a second to talk about, and then we'll get back to the plot. 
500 years earlier, under the rule of King Saul, the first, you know, the first king of Israel, God instructs Saul to wipe out, completely wipe out this people called the Amalekites because they were just beyond wicked. They, they had been attacking the very weakest of the women and the children and the elderly as they were fleeing from Egypt. But Saul disobeys God. And instead of wiping them out, he keeps the best stuff for himself. He keeps the best of their livestock. He keeps the best of their nobles. He takes their king away as plunder. And the name of the king that he carried away, that Amalekite king, was Agag. And so Haman, the Agagite, hates Jewish people. And of course he does, because 500 years earlier, they were nearly wiped out by the Jewish king. So back to the story. Chapter 3, King Xerxes has elevated Haman to the highest uh, position in the kingdom and demands that everyone kneel down to him, which Mordecai, who works as a guard at the king's gate, refuses to do, and Haman is furious. And then he hears that Mordecai is Jewish, and then he becomes even more furious, and he says, I don't just want to kill him, I want to kill every single one of them. And then Haman essentially tricks the king into signing this death decree, this law that demands that all Jewish people are killed. And, and Xerxes is such a pushover, like he didn't even know when he signs it what people he just sentenced to death because Haman just calls them a certain people. And to decide when this genocide happens, Haman casts a lot, or in other words, he rolls dice. The, the, the word for die in Hebrew is, is poor. And so the dice lands on the 13th of Adar about 11 months later. And so Esther and Mordecai, who are now, remember, under a sentence of death because they're both Jewish, they make a plan. She's going to reveal her Jewishness to the king and then uh, beg for him to reverse the decree. But there's one problem. There's a law stating that anyone who approaches the king without first being summoned by him has to die. And it has been 30 days since the king has summoned Esther. Trouble in paradise, right? She's been queen now for five years and, and perhaps the king is no longer as taken with her as he once was. In fact, to do this may give him a good reason to replace her with a new queen. So Esther sends this message to Mordecai. Mordecai sends back a message where he gives her probably the best known speech in all of Esther. He says, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Another place, by the way, closest any time anyone comes to saying the name of God in Esther. Relief will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And so Esther finds her courage with those infamous words, if I perish, I perish. And she gussies herself up and she goes before Xerxes and he's pleased with her. So he extends his scepter and spares her life. And he says, what do you want, Esther? I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. And she says, I want you to come to a party that I'm going to throw for you and for Haman. The plot thickens. And so uh, they, they go to this party and, and he says again, you know, what do you want, Esther? I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. And she says, and you think maybe she's going to say, I'm Jewish and please don't kill all of us. But no, she says, Actually, I want you to come to another party tomorrow, uh, an exclusive banquet where I'm going to make a request of you and Haman. And so Haman goes home and he is high on life, man. He just ate with the king and queen. He was the only one invited. But on his way home, he runs into Mordecai, who, despite being under a death sentence, still will not kneel, doesn't even look scared. I have no evidence to support this from the Bible, but I want to think that he kind of like smirked at him. <laughs> and so uh, Haman is just furious. 
and he goes home and he and he complains to his family about it. First he brags. He says, I went to the banquet and I was the only one to eat with the king and queen and I'm going to another one tomorrow, but I can't enjoy any of it while that Mordecai is alive. So that night he builds uh, a, a pole to impale Mordecai on the next day, a 75 foot pole. Why 75 feet? I don't know, it feels like a lot of work. Historians think maybe the, the higher the pole, the more it implies shame. But in any case, things are looking pretty grim for God's people. But then in chapter six, we see the pivot point of this story and the beginning of all these wonderful reversals of fortune that happen as a result. This is Esther chapter six, verse one. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendant answered. And then right then, Haman rushes into the king to ask to kill Mordecai. But before he can get the words out, right? Before he can get the words out, the king says, Haman, what should be done for the man that the king delights to honor? And Haman is so self-absorbed, he thinks, well, of course he must be talking about me because who else would the king want to honor? And so he lays it on thick. He says, put him in a royal robe and, and put him on a royal horse and lead him around the city saying, this is the man the king delights to honor. And Xerxes says, great, do all that for Mordecai. And so Haman, in this moment of utter humiliation, has to lead Mordecai around the city in a royal robe on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. It's a low point for old Haman. And then he is rushed off to Esther's second banquet. Maybe that'll cheer him up, you know, where she's going to make her special request. So the king and Haman arrive. And then this is the moment Esther finally reveals the truth. She says, I'm Jewish, your wife. Also, Haman tricked you into signing a decree that is going to kill me and all my people and Mordecai who saved your life. And so the king uh, storms out of the room in a drunken rage. He's, he's drunk a lot in this book, maybe to find some guards. And, and Haman falls down on Esther's feet to beg for his life. And exactly at that moment, the king walks back in and it looks to him that Haman is assaulting his wife. So he immediately executes Haman, ironically, on the 75 foot pole that Haman had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king advances Mordecai to Haman's previous position, to, to second in command, his right-hand man. And that can feel kind of like the happy ending of the book, but stick with me because the plot thickens again. We find out that no, no law made by a Persian king can ever be revoked. So even if Xerxes doesn't want the Jews to die, he cannot or more likely will not revoke his own previous law. And so he tells Mordecai and Esther, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the power to write a counter decree. So write whatever seems best to you. And so they write this decree that on, on, the, on, the, on the 13th day of the month of Adar, the Jews must defend themselves, take up arms and defend themselves and kill anyone who attacks them. And so they write this decree and they send it out to all the provinces. And then about eight months later, the big day comes and their enemies attack the Jews, but God gives them strength and they triumph. They kill all of Haman's family. And in the, in the city of Susa, within the citadel, the, the decree is actually extended an extra day. So there's two days of killing instead of just one. So the Jews are rescued from annihilation, seemingly not 
by the miraculous hand of God sweeping in and, and providing an army of angels or the, the parting of a sea, but, but by a series of, of mundane, ordinary events, like a king who just can't sleep. In the wake of their victory, Esther and Mordecai uh, decree, they write a law, that the Jewish people will celebrate the holiday of Purim. And so now each year, the rabbi reads the whole Megillah, the entire scroll of Esther, complete with dramatic pauses uh, and time for people to boo and shake their fists at Haman's name. Isn't that fascinating? Now, we won't have time to, to dig into everything within Esther, all the richness there in these four weeks. I wish that we could, but at a minimum, I needed you to know the story. And so uh, read the whole book this week if you can. It's only 10 chapters, just do two a day. And, and, and if you do that, you'll be able to soak up those details and those ironies and those reversals of fortune. But now as promised, let's wrap up with my one point of my one point sermon. I was doing a, a sermon preview uh, a few weeks back um, and, and Ember was in the other room doing launch ad. This was before we made the switch. And uh, I was reading my sermon um, on my computer. So I really was not paying any attention to anything peripherally. Um, and Ember had snuck up behind me and as if from nowhere jumps out and yells, boo. And she got me so good. I screamed so loud. And she had army crawled from the living room to the office. So, so I didn't see her coming, but also no one on Zoom saw her coming. And so when I screamed, it really scared Zach. And then he screamed and we were all very startled. And none of, it saw, none of us saw it coming. Her plot was well in motion before we ever saw it coming. The book of Esther never speaks the name of God, but it does so on purpose because it invites us. Esther invites us to look for God's activity even when God himself seems absent. It invites us to see that his redemptive plot is in motion even when we cannot see it coming. Which leads me to my one point, which is God still works through morally ambiguous characters. There's this fascinating debate about whether or not the book of Esther should actually be called the book of Mordecai. You know, people get real worked up about it, but Mordecai was the brave one and it was his plan, but no, Esther took the risk, so smash the patriarchy, etc. I mean, we really, we want to know who the hero of this story is, but guys, that misses the point completely because neither of them are the hero of the story. They both have serious flaws that are not addressed by the text, and I think that's intentional. I mean, Mordecai's not the hero. We, we don't know why he wouldn't kneel down to Haman, but we can make an educated guess that it was more likely to be prejudice than holiness. Jews hated Agagites and Agagites hated Jews. Maybe Cousin Morty was just smug. And Esther isn't the hero. She, she requested a second day to kill people. Like one wasn't enough and she asked for every son of Haman to be impaled on a pole. And we don't know why, it might've been spite. I mean, if these are our heroes, actually, let me say, if we make them our heroes, then we run the risk of unconsciously sanctifying prejudice and spite. And that's a slippery slope because then we might start justifying the prejudice and spite of any leader who punishes the people that we hate most. Esther isn't the, isn't the hero of Esther and it's not Mordecai. The hero of Esther is God. God is speaking to us off the pages. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot, the dice, remember? 
the dice, the poor, the poor is cast, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God is the hero of Esther. It was God who saved the orphan, God who deposed the queen, God who made Esther so winsome, God who put Mordecai at the gate to hear the plot, God who kept the king awake, God who reminds him of Mordecai, God who had a gallows prepared. God who gave them the ability to fight back when their death sentence was a law that could not be revoked. God Almighty is the hero of Purim, the festival of lots, because the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Everyone in this book, everyone in this book is morally ambiguous except for God. God is our hero, but in the drama of redemption, he still works through morally ambiguous characters because if he didn't, guys, there wouldn't be any characters left for him to work through. What wretched men that we are, who will free us from this body of death. Thanks be to God who saves us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So why should this matter to us today? Well, very practically, it matters because in two days, we're going to have a presidential election and about half of you are going to feel like God answered your prayer and the other half are going to feel like God has forgotten you. And that, that's a big deal because you've been beaten up by this year or you've been beaten up by your marriage or you've been beaten up by your health or lack of health care or you're beaten up by the holes in your kid's backpack that you can't replace until you get a job or you know, you're, you're beaten up by the choices that you've made with your body in this interminable isolation or you're beaten up by people telling you that you're the problem because the moral compass of the world is shifting faster than you can keep up with or you're beaten up because people who you thought were your friends are coming down on the opposite side of an argument that is theoretical to them, but is life and death to you. And you cannot figure out how we can love the same Jesus, but not see eye to eye on this. And you're teetering dangerously close to a crisis of faith. And so you're looking for evidence, any evidence that God is at work in this world and you just can't find enough to hang on to. Listen, he has not abandoned you. He's not abandoned us. The gift of Esther is that it reminds us to remember that God is still working. He's always working to draw the threads of this drama together, even when we must submit to the authority of fallen men. And that doesn't mean we lay down and let a genocide happen. Esther fought back. Of, of course we should take action. But when we are met with obstacles and challenges and laws that seem like they cannot be revoked, we can trust that God is at work still. And in fact, he's at work through us, through our small decisions, our, our small lives. He uses those ordinary choices to do his work. You have no idea when your small decision could be the stuff of miracles. And so while you're waiting for a glimpse of him, while you're straining your eyes to see him, any sign of him on that apocalypse horizon, remember he is still working. Remember he is sneaking up behind us. And his plot is still in motion even when we cannot see it coming.